You look pale, Mr. Bond. I hope I didn't frighten you. Well, you see, I've always been a nervous passenger. Some men just don't like to be driven. No, some men just don't like to be taken for a ride. So, Bond movies. It was always on the cards that we'd end up doing a load of Bond movies, because why wouldn't we? We're both James Bond fans. Indeed. And we did A View to a Kill not long ago, and that went down so well, we've sort of moved the Bond movie appraisal up, up our list of priorities. And we were talking about what to do next. And it was you who suggested Thunderball, because you said something along the lines of, we could do Thunderball and also do Never Say Never Again. Yes. Now, I often feel that in these podcasts, I talk too much and you don't talk enough. So... I, there's a fascinating backstory to Thunderball, which Never Say Never Again reveals. Yes. So I wonder if you could lay that out for people. I'm a little rusty. Oh, well, I, I'll be happy. I had hoped to read Battle for Bond again before this. To, but to anyway, jump in but again. Cut yeah. a long story short. Um, before Doctor No was made, exactly. Ian Fleming had looked into making a Bond film. They'd already made a TV movie with Barry Nelson, which is. Awful. I know, isn't it? Doesn't they, don't they call him Jimmy um, Bond or something? Jimmy Bond! <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, Jesus it's, Christ, Vietnam! And it, it, it's, uh, it's a version of Casino Royale, isn't it? Uh, yes. And it's really bad. But he'd always wanted to get them on the screen, right? Yeah. And he'd basically set about writing screenplays and trying to get projects off the ground with a couple of mates, uh, among whom you had Kevin McClory. And he and Kevin McClory with someone else. I can't remember the other guy's name. Jack Whittingham. Yes. Uh, they Can worked... you tell us who those guys are? I mean, I don't really know. Do you Do you know any background about them? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is Fleming. It's probably just two guys he played golf with. Well, let's have a look <laughs> on... I imagine they had a background in movies, so let's see. Uh, okay. Yes, so Kevin McClory was uh, involved as an associate producer on movies like Around the World in 80 Days. He'd been something to uncredited to do that, which isn't 56. So he was obviously something in the film business in the late 50s. Ah, Associate producer points towards um, money or no, he would work here. This is interesting. He was working in the sound department on movies. Right. <laughs> he was a boom operator, uncredited <laughs> on Moulin Rouge, Beat the Devil, The African... All these James Bond movies. This uncredited stuff is a bit worrying, but... Who's the assistant to John Houston? Well, the uncredited. If you're looking at IMDb, the uncredited stuff on Bond will be creating things like Spectre. No, this has nothing to do with Bond. This is Kevin McClory, and it's his background. He's obviously a mate of John Houston's. He worked with him on uh, Moulin Rouge, The African Queen, and uh, yes, and he did. The, he actually did the screenplay for a movie called The Boy in the Bridge in 1959. So he was a movie professional who somehow Fleming got to know, hmm. and. Jack Whittingham, I'm just looking to see what his credits are. Oh, he's got solid writing credits going back to 1939 to Q Planes, which is a quite a well-known kind of cult movie because Q Planes has got some Ralph Richardson in it. It's yeah, it's uh, Lawrence Olivier, Ralph Richardson, Valerie Hobson. It's a, a quirky British Secret Service agent named Major Hammond tries to discover he's using a C. Anyway, so uh, Jack Whittingham had extensive screenplay credits going back 20 years, even at this point. Oh, shut up now. Sorry. So, yeah, um, they wrote a screenplay. They shopped it around. Nobody was really interested. 
And then Fleming came to write the Thunderball novel and decided to use elements from the screenplay in the novel. And then came the point of making the films and lots of stuff in the book wasn't actually his in the first place. Yeah, so so it, it made sense that he recycled the, the screenplay as his next novel. Yeah. Uh, but I believe that at first he didn't even give any credit to, to McClory or Whittingham because no. in, in my pan paperback, which I had when I was a kid, I was always fascinated by the bit in the front where it says, based on a screen treatment by Kevin McClory and Jack Whittingham or something like that. I thought, yeah. oh, what, what was going on there? Because like, you know, as a little kid, you don't really understand the mechanics of these things. Oh, that sounds interesting. There was a considerable legal kerfuffle. And eventually, uh, Thunderball did get made as a film. So, so there was a legal, I believe there was a legal kerfuffle just before the movie even came on. Just yes. when the book came out. There, there were a couple. A, yeah. Because Fleming, I believe uh, somebody cited the stress of it being the cause of Fleming's death. Oh, well, legal wrangles are never fun, so that no. might be true. Um, but this could easily just be in the McClory camp, or the uh, Fleming camp, sorry. Yeah. Trying to demonise yeah. McClory. Eon, most likely, trying to yeah, demonise McClory. Um, I believe there was a second legal kerfuffle uh, prior to Never Say Never Again being made, but Never Say Never Again is essentially a remake of Thunderbolt because they are allowed to use, or McClory is allowed to use, elements that were in that original treatment that he wrote with yeah. Fleming that weren't previously established in other books. So it's kind of a nest of snakes. So these three guys wrote a Bond movie in the late 50s, didn't come off, Fleming wrote a novel based on it, and this is, would have been the first legal problem. He didn't credit the other two guys, and I think they, they took him to court just when the book came out. Mm. So when the film had to happen, because by now they'd had four big Bond movies. It was yes. From Russia With Love, Doctor No, Goldfinger, and... Uh, you only twice. Oh, but this, where does Thunderball fall? Is it before or after you only? It's before you only live twice, isn't it? Isn't it the fourth Bond, I'm asking? So let's yes, make... because it was supposed to be on a Majesty's Secret Service next, but they delayed that and they did You Only Live Twice and then Connery left. Yeah, so this yeah. would be the fourth Bond. And it was by now they'd done Goldfinger <clears throat> for Rush of Love and Doctor. It was a huge franchise, but they had come to make this novel. And the problem from the point of view of the Bond producers, which is Eon Films, yes. was that they had to, they couldn't make this movie without McClory having some kind of involvement. And astonishingly enough, he has the sole producer credit yeah, on it. Yeah, he does, isn't he? It's, it, the opening titles are interesting. Given what we know about Broccoli, I mean, Saltzman was pretty so easy going, but the, the, the was two, not. The two Bond producers were Harry Saltzman and, and Cubby Broccoli. I don't yeah. know his real name. Albert. Was. Albert Broccoli, right. Um, yeah, so they, they're basically McClory gets sole producer credit on this film, But they they get unusual. they get credit right at the beginning. Does it say something like a, a, a Saltz, Saltzman Broccoli production or something? Yeah, I mean... Yeah. It, by that stage, you're, you're too busy looking at the tits. Well, what you're talking about is a wonderful Maurice Binder yeah. title sequence because we mentioned how disappointing the one by Maurice... He always did the title sequences, how disappointing View for a Kill was. And you can see how true that is by looking at how great this title sequence yeah. is. But just to go back to that, the fact that Kevin McClory gets full producer credit is a big deal. It is, I, well, a really big deal, yeah. And I imagine um, it a big payday too. It was modest. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think the problem was is the either took the deal that was there or took them to court again and taken them to court. Now, in the first there is a book about this, isn't there? Battle for Bond. And I might even have a copy of that somewhere, but people should check that out. Do there you... was another book before it, or it was the same book. I know it got pulled from publication at one point 
and then re-released. So I've got a feeling maybe... A... So it's still a legal nest of snakes. And just, just to... Well, isn't it? I mean, it's always going to be. And there's a third nest of snakes because after Thunderball came out, um, Kevin McClory always maintained that he had the rights to make a James Bond movie yeah. because he had been involved at the ground floor in, in creating this Bond movie. And there, there was battles for years and years and years, wasn't there, about whether he could do it. And finally, I think they just... Eon just threw in the towel. By that time, it would just be Cubby Broccoli. Threw in the towel, and they let him do it. And they made a movie called Never Say Never Again, which was sort of a remake of Thunderball. I mean, yeah, there's a lot in there that's in Thunderball. Interestingly, yeah. he was going to remake it a third time. For years, we were being told that Warhead was on the way, which was the Another? third remake. Yeah. Oh, well, I don't see why they shouldn't. I, I think it's a fine idea, because you get this... You have the normal Bond franchise, and occasionally you get these kind of wacky outliers, and I think that that's only healthy. Yeah, well, unfortunately, Eon are tough to take on with these things. So Highly any, litigious. any studio that yeah. would have taken on Warhead would have been facing some sort of legal action, so it yeah. makes it very difficult to get investment. And we probably touch on this when we do Never Say Never, but um, the reason that movie's called that is because... That's what Connery's wife said to him. Because he said he was never going to do another Bond movie. And she said, never say never again. And he said, that's a good title. And, and they used it. But Kevin McClory was very smart because he knew that Sean Connery had said he was not going to do a Bond movie again. So he didn't try and get Connery to star in the movie. He said, oh, nobody knows more about James Bond than you. Will you help us write the script? And he sort of sucked him into the process. Did you know that? Yeah, well, there's a very good documentary on the making of uh, Never Say Never Again. So, so all that's out there. Anyway, mm. enough about Never Say Never, which is a kind of remake <laughs> of Thunderball. Let's talk about Thunderball. Yes. Thunderball's a weird one. Uh, there are three James Bond films I hardly ever watch. Of the original run, which I include up to sort of Goldeneye. Yeah, yeah. Right. and they are? Thunderball, Spy Who Loved Me, and Octopussy. Now, is it true that you've got a thing about underwater sequences? Yeah. Can you explain that? I can't. It's the weirdest thing. I, I love swimming, and I love swimming underwater, but when I watch films set underwater, I just doze off. And I went to see Tomorrow Never Dies three times and fell asleep all three times. I had a season ticket at the time. What is Tomorrow Never Dies? Another bomb It's a Bos movie? Pierce Brosnan one. Oh, no, I have forgotten diving, it. Yeah. Well, it, was, it wasn't great, but I kept falling asleep at the same point when they go underwater. And so Thunderball... Also, I, I never really liked Thunderball that much, but I think it's oh, because... It's very good. Well, this wasn't... The fun part of this is that having watched it so little, this was do, like do, watching it, a new Is it really Bond like film. a narcolepsy thing? Like, you just chop off? Yeah, seriously, it's, it happened in uh, Phantom Menace as well. Right at the beginning of Phantom Menace, they go underwater and there's this long underwater sequence. I just passed out. <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh. It's not... not it's not, weird. Um, but, um, so it's not just an aversion. I Jaws. I, I never liked Jaws. I can't watch it. Well, because you just fall asleep in it. Just loads of underwater crap. I'm just not interested. Okay. So you've always had a slightly <laughs> unfair dismissal kind of of this film. Because of those sequences, I think, yeah. yeah. And folks, i got to say, those are some of the best things in the movie. Sadly, yes. I mean, they, they're very well shot, but it does get very, very repetitive after the first diving sequence. Well, especially if you keep falling asleep. Because I, um, I watched this in two chunks, and the bloody blu-ray does not remember where you left off oh, if you switch it off yeah so i had to use scene skip and yeah. every time i press skip it was another diving sequence yeah. i thought how am i meant to know well, what diving sequence it I was from that at? point of view i'm sure i can see why it wouldn't be a lot of fun but i i've got to say all those underwater sequences are are wonderful they're they're jackpot in this i would tend to say i mean this is what bond was doing well at this stage this was the first 
diving film. I mean, okay, he had a couple of diving sequences in yeah. uh, Doctor and No. And this but... is what makes this really distinct, especially the big underwater battle yeah. at the end with the colour-coded frogmen, which I love. Well, eventually. They they take a while to cotton on to the fact that they actually colour code them. So for a did... while there, everyone's yeah. wearing black. And oh, forget that. In that yeah. earlier sequence. And I had no idea what was going on but, in that sequence. Well, that's fair enough. But shall we sort of start at the beginning? Yes. I, I, I believe that there's, there's a pre-title sequence of a, there's a funeral... And uh, the guy's not really dead. He's dressed as, as his own widow. Anyway, Bond, there's, I've written great fight scene at the beginning. Also written, where the fuck did the jetpack come from? Two good points. And I have <laughs> Thank you. absolutely no recollection of any of that at all. I don't think I've ever seen the beginning of Thunderball. Well, it was completely I'd completely me. forgotten it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, like I say, I've probably only watched Thunderball maybe two, I three times. I kind of remember the jetpack, though, because it's on the yeah, posters. Yeah, but I thought it's in your only look twice. That's the mini helicopter. Yeah, isn't yeah. it weird? Yeah, um, I can understand that because this this isn't a movie about up in the air. Whereas, um, <laughs> you only live twice. Is it's, yeah. it's the fight in the air instead of the fight underwater? Um, but yeah, yeah strange. Uh, what I did notice, I mean, you, one of the best things about Unimaginably Secret Service is the direction and the editing. Um, Peter Hunt. Uh, directed that and Peter Hunt's editing is phenomenal and this fight sequence at the beginning of Thunderball yeah. he's using every trick at his disposal it's to a really cut good that fight, fight sequence yeah, together yeah. and it's brilliant and there's also a bit where a car is racing along and somebody puts a slide rule across the table it's moving the same way there's a there's a wonderful just kind of cut <clears> or sort of a dissolve where two things are moving in the same yeah. direction like they put a, a ruler across a map and then they cut to a car moving in the same direction I'm moving my hands as if anybody yeah. can see but makes great all, audio <laughs> all of which is to, just to, to agree with you about what a terrific editor Peter Hunt he was. more than deserved his directing gig on on a Majesty's Secret Service and I wish he'd done more Bond did he do any more Bonds? no but he then went on to he did Gold didn't he? was that not him? Uh, he did Gold he did uh, there's a Charles Bronson film which is a Roger Moore movie but not a Bond yeah. movie yeah. Uh, based on a Robert Smith novel he did a couple of Bronson ones actually and he did one with Pierce Brosnan as well um, so Peter did he do Death Hunt? no I'm thinking of Peter Hunt that's why I'm thinking of Death Hunt of course you are <laughs> <laughs> Supervising editor Peter Hunt. So let's oh, we'll have a quick look uh, on IMDb to see what because it's, it's white something bear white big great white, white buffalo white buffalo. There Did you he go. do that? I'm okay, pretty so sure that's directed, what it is. Right. So let's go backwards. Uh, TV movie assassination. I've got no idea what that is. Assassination is a Bronson film. But I don't think he did that. With J. Lee Thompson. Well, hang on a sec. No, he did it. Bronson assassination. Did he really? Yeah, and written by Richard Sale, who also wrote the White Buffalo, which is kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? Um, so Death Hunt as Peter Hunt. So he did. Oh, do he that. did do Death Hunt. <laughs> Yay! Yay! Good for you, Death Hunt. Which is oh, it's a Bronson movie with Lee Marvin. Oh my God! Yeah, it's good. Well, okay. So sorry, we're, we're going to avoid the rabbit hole, but we are just talking about Peter Hunt here, folks. You know, my confusion with um, Pierce Brosnan there was I was thinking of Death Train, which is <laughs> Shout at the Devil, which is another Wilbur Smith movie, and Gold back to back Wilbur Smith movies, uh, and that had Lee Marvin in it too. And was it Roger Moore as that as well? In it, I believe so. So, uh, a prestigious kind of career, but he, he should have done more. He did one episode of The Persuaders, and and then his start was on Her Majesty. He started with Honor Majesty's Secret Service. What a great start. Now, but, I've actually completely forgotten who did this one, uh, who directed... Uh, it's Terence Young. Terence Young. I think he makes a hash of it. Oh, that's... But you, he's got such a great support team, it doesn't matter. Is yeah. that what you're saying? Um, I think there are a well, lot why of... Does, I'm not going to defend him, but I'm just interested. Why do you think he makes a... One of my big irritations is the, the beauty of Bond films from this era 
um, the big draw of them when I was little is that you go to lots of places and you see lots of scenery, yeah, you see lots of if things. If I may just interrupt briefly, didn't he direct all the previous Bonds? No, it was... Um, I'm going to remember... Uh, oh, God's sake! <laughs> um, it's not Terence Young. It's so Terence Young did... I'm looking at here. It's not Guy thing. He did Doctor um, No. He did From Russia Without. He didn't do Goldfinger. Guy Hamilton. Guy Hamilton. There you go. Yeah. Oh, so okay. So this was Terence Young, I think, back after three, a break. Three out of four. Right. Yeah. Um, what he doesn't do in this film is an establishing wide shot of their lovely, beautiful locations. He keeps. It's almost like he keeps forgetting. So everything opens small. And you've got this lovely, beautiful, big marketplace, and it opens on a two-shot of Bond. But does it not then pull out to a, a, a not big until shot? toward the end of the sequence? By which time, you know, the action's over lost and it, the point yeah. of the scene's over. So you've lost that big scenery cut. I get the feeling that this was probably a longer film that was cut down a lot in editing. Well, then you. But then, how long does it take for an establishing shot to be on screen? A second. But it's you don't. The same. problem is, you want to show the money. You want to show your stunt sequences underwater. You mm. want all that stuff in there. That's what costs them for time and money to produce, and that's probably what the audience wants to see more anyway. So if you're cutting for time, you're going to lose a few establishing shots here and there. I think that's probably what happened. And it's only three establishing shots, but the fact that I could count three suggests it's probably a problem. Well, okay, so Terence Young, uh, not as fine. So I'm quite willing yeah. to believe that you're absolutely right on that. Just quickly. The other the... problem I have is Connery seems beyond board. Oh, well, I have a big disagreement with you coming up, but first let me quickly run through the writing credits. At the risk of having talked this to death, Fleming, one, yeah. Whittingham and McClory got a credit for it, having done the original story. Whittingham did do a full screenplay based on that, apparently, so that's what they were shopping around was a Jack Whittingham screenplay. But that has now been completely rewritten by Richard Maybaum, who was with the series from the beginning yeah. and was also still up with it on View to a Kill, and John Hopkins now. I want to make it... A Big noise about John Hopkins because he's a British TV writer and a very good one. He did things. He did a, a series with, um, uh, I'm looking at her, Judy Dench, called The Story of Your... No, it's called Talking to a Stranger. Then he did a, a stage play called The Story of Yours, which was made into the film The Offence. Sidney Lumet directed it with Sean Connery again. He's a really intriguing British writer. Uh, and I'm delighted to see that he got a big like jackpot screenplay credit on, on on this movie and i remember i must have seen an interview with him somewhere because he said he went to the premiere of goldfinger in paris and he said he was in the car with connery the car window was open and this girl jumped through the window into connery's lap and uh, john hopkins says oh the girls are jumping through the window <laughs> like what kind of world have i got into it looks interesting but i'm just quickly seeing if hopkins did anything else because i've already done do uh, honour to our to Richard Maybaum, who's the backbone of this series. I'm just seeing if I can tell you anything else interesting about John Hopkins. Uh, after Thunderball, he did lot, still did lots and lots of TV, usually TV plays, of Mice and Men TV movie, uh, The Virgin Soldiers, which was um, uh, probably an interesting British movie you might want to look at at some time. The Offence, which I've mentioned. Uh, TV movies, TV, TV, the rest of it's all on television. Some of them quite prestigious credits, but all just TV. And he co-wrote or did a draft? Uh, well, what they used to do, there's usually two writers credited on these movies, Richard Maybaum and somebody else. So what happens was, I think they 
they wrote separately and had their separate drafts grafted together. That's as far as I can come up with it. Because what's curious with this is this doesn't feel like a Richard Maybaum script because the first half an hour barely has any dialogue. It's a very visual what, first 30 What minutes. is the hallmark of a Richard Maybaum script? Pointless dialogue. <laughs> okay. <So laughs> All right. Um, I like how sparing it is. Unfortunately, it doesn't give much away. And I think it kind of leaves you a bit high and dry for a while there while you're trying to work out. There's a lot going on in the very short space of time. And it feels like Connery had pages of dialogue, which when he got there on the day, just said, I ain't doing that. Well, you said that he, you, you felt he was phoning it in. What yeah. I've written here is Connery has great presence and enormous casual authority. Yes, he does. But he has that laterally. And yeah. he's not... I'm so not, he's not on set. That, and yeah. if you put him in front of the camera, that's what you get. But... In terms of a performance, he's just muttering lines like there's there's no importance what to it. What this did for me was it just reminded me how, how great Connery was as Bond. He has this tremendous charisma. He has presence in this film, yeah. definitely. I mean, you can't deny that. So, yeah, absolutely. But in terms of acting, I think he was quite happy to stand there and walk through sets and run through sets and tiptoe upstairs and be an attraction was, machine. But was I think when he, it came to actually delivering was he dialogue, called upon to do much acting? I, well, I thought he delivered the dialogue. I just thought he was great, and it reminded me of what a great Bond he was. But he, if you're saying that he's bored with it by this time, I'm sure that's true. There's no wit to it. <laughs> well, the then thing. maybe that's because these... there's none of that Maybomb dialogue. Maybe that's part of the problem. But what there is think? a throwaway after every death. Uh, oh, yeah. There's yeah. a line, but they really are throwaway because I don't know, I can't remember any of them. Well, I'm trying to, but you know, yeah. I, I've I mean, never Usually thought... you'd remember a zinger. No, I mean, look at uh, On a Majesty's Secret Service. He, really he had, had a lot of guts. I, it's true. Ever since I was about eight years old, I saw that movie the first time. I like that's I know, the one we both It's came stuck to. in it. You, you're right. No, actually, I think you've just proved your point. <laughs> yep. I, you know, you've flawlessly proved your point, my friend. So there wasn't that. that none of those great zingers. But it's, uh, it's a, perhaps because of the story that's been worked out, it's a wonderful story about hijacking nuclear weapons. And it's, yes. Uh, this is the other problem I have with it, um, yes. which is the plan is to launch these nuclear we nuclear sorry weapons on uh, various <laughs> countries, regardless. Um, that's going to have fallout. That's going to have consequences. Yeah, but look, it's, we a, it's have a, a villain here. Who it's is, a, an extortion situation. They say, yes. "Give us the money, two hundred eighty million dollars, because it's a hundred million pounds." Right. Those were the days, or we'll drop the nukes on somebody. Right. Regardless where you drop the nukes, it's going to have consequences globally. It's not just going to affect that country. And you think that, that the evil international crime organisation Spectre should be a little more yeah, aware of these I issues? I think you should call their bluff because they'd be dicks to do it. I don't understand. <laughs> just because they'd be dicks to do it doesn't mean they won't do it, dude. I need a villain with credible... I can't believe we're arguing about this. With credible uh, motivation. Now, the weird thing is, the only time the Bond films ever did this was with uh, The World Is Not Enough, with Robert Carlyle. Terrible film, terrible character, but the only one with genuine motivation in that he's dying, so he's got nothing to lose. And that's what you need from a guy threatening the whole world. I think all you need from a Bond villain really is a white cat in the lap. We've got that in this. We, we <laughs> have a big Spectre meeting, and who's in charge of Spectre? Is it Blofeld? Well, okay, so we don't see this guy's face. We just see the, the cat He's known as lap. number one in the early days. Yeah, so number one. But at this meeting, they're all these... It's a big bad guy meeting. Oh, but I've got to shout out to... Ken Adam. 
Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. The set designer. And... Not as many great sets in this as he normally does, but that opening set, that henchman set, is the most ridiculous waste of space it's I've ever seen so on a film. so wonderful, and it called to mind, <laughs> of course, the war room in, in Doctor Strangelove. Hmm. I've actually written that this, this movie... I've written it's like Doctor Strangelove in colour and underwater. It does have that kind of that feel to it, partly because of the, the planes and the nuclear bombs mm. and everything. But Ken Hudson designed that too, didn't he? he uh, Ken Adams, I'm yeah. sorry, I don't know why my brain went to Hudson. But yeah, fabulous design. So we got this wonderful meeting room. Uh, we got number one and then number two, who's the main bad guy in this? Largo, played by? Uh, uh, Adolfo Celli. Right. But, so we never see the top bad guy but he's he's presiding over this meeting and these various crime guys are reporting to him and it's just up with this one line of dialogue uh about the money they made for their consultation on the british train robbery yeah so we're gonna have to do that it happened during filming um seriously so they hastily wrote it into the plot so that it'd be relevant so i think it happened in summer of 60 this movie came out in 65 wow 65 yeah. yeah and they had it out at christmas so, well, that um, was great. I, yeah. Because I was thinking at the time, wasn't that quite a long time where people remember what they're talking about? It was really a hot topic at that time. One day I'll have to tell you about my granddad's involvement in Great Train. No, no. Well, say that because <laughs> one of the movies I want you to watch is Robbery. Peter Yates' Robbery with Stanley Baker in it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think I've seen that. But yeah, I haven't we'll do that again. since yeah. God knows when. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the henchman. The big problem with this film is Austin Powers. Um, spoofs have a tendency to spoil... To retroactively yeah. spoil stuff, yeah. Um, we found this with Doctor Who. We did a, a, a spoof video on Pyramids of Mars. Okay. And You found you could never watch it again? No, I can't. Oh, that's and such a shame. The trouble is I know friends who've got the same problem, yeah. where there are bits they like. And the trouble with Austin Powers is you've got number two with an eye patch, which is what you've got here. And you've also got <laughs> all the henchmen sitting around. And you've got the henchman being destroyed in the chair as well. Yeah. Um, but almost like an Austin Powers film, the henchman either side of the guy that gets killed, both get out their hankies in unison and mop their brows. <laughs> and it's obviously a direction has obviously been shouted out. No one's known who was being shouted at, so they've both done exactly the same thing. It looks terrible. Does it? I did. Terrence Young again. I thought it was <laughs> it was all fine. And, and I don't have that Austin Powers problem because those movies have so vanished from my brain. I mean I sort of I kind of sort of like them at the time, but they're not very funny. It's the curse of the nineties. Anyway, we can we can do gold member one day actually that's probably the worst one yeah. but one day we'll do one of those Austin Powers movies the spy who shagged me maybe um, but back to this movie yes I, I wanted to say that uh, Largo's boat is called Disco Volante which means flying saucer yes and it's called Disco Volante in the book as well isn't it yeah it's just what a great name for a boat especially if you're a bad guy with a yacht well I think the idea is is that in the book it is it's more like a convertible yeah. vehicle isn't it so it's a long time since I've read that well before. you mean it's more like a I'm trying like an I can't remember the, I it's don't know. not a proper yacht it's, it's a, a it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's yeah. like a disc shape yeah, yeah. It's like a flying saucer shape yeah there's a name perhaps for these ships but i forgot my nautical term terminology is not good at the moment oh, it's so. like a catamaran that's it exactly yeah. the yeah. word i was looking for thank you um, good job you're here other concerns yeah the traction machine has a lethal setting yeah well okay so <laughs> what matt's talking about is that there's there's much more about this in the book where bond has to go to a health farm and eat yogurt and drink lemon juice. The thing, you're talking about stuff you always remember. This remembered. is my favourite stuff from the book, is Bond at the health Yeah, farm. yeah, well, the thing is, you're talking about, like, catchphrases you remembered. What I remember from that book and never forgotten is Bond has this old Scottish woman who cooks for him, and uh, she says to him, like, he's come back and he's eating, like, essentially muesli, the equivalent of muesli. She says, 
uh, if you go into battle with yon muck in your belly, you'll get killed. And she fries him some eggs. <laughs> it's like, that's the one thing I can remember from that book. So he's been sent to this health farm because he's been eating and he's been drinking and smoking too much, which he bloody well has. Yeah. And there's this machine that's designed to stretch your spine. Doesn't sound like a good machine to start with. But as Matt says, there's a lethal setting on it, just, just in case you want to kill the guy who's in it. It also doesn't look like a safe machine to me. <laughs> there's nothing safe about that machine. Oh, and you were talking about, in another film, about uh, another movie star's behaviour towards women. I th his behaviour towards the woman in the health farm is pretty it's reprehensible. It's sleazy as hell, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, and he she's... basically shags her so she won't lose her job. <laughs> That's right. Yes. He bla he blackmails her into having sex. And this is after she, when she straps in the, the machine, she says, this is the first time I felt safe today. <laughs> this is not post Harvey Weinstein. These are not good things to be saying about the hero of your movie. And the thing is, I don't remember Bond in the books being that sleazy. He... No, that sleazy has all been amped up and made kind of glamorous in yeah. quotation marks uh, for the movies, hasn't it? It's uncomfortable now. That is very uncomfortable. Uh, can I, but having said that, there's some cracking Bond girls in this. <laughs> I knew that was where you were going. Well, no, but who's you it? Sleaze. I, no, but who's it who plays Paula? She's wonderful. Paula? She oh, gets she's the one that gets killed off. Martina Bezek. Bezek? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she was in uh, another one. Yeah, I, I know the name really well, so she must have been in something. She, no, she was in the previous film. So she was in uh, Goldfinger? No. Oh, she in Goldfinger? She plays a gypsy dancer in one of them. Oh, well, that would the only gypsy dancer is from Russia with Love. Yeah, so that, yeah. Oh, but she's she's a knockout. May I just say she's a knockout? Well, I really like Luciana Paluzzi. Oh, is she the bad girl? She plays Fiona, yeah. <laughs> and she, I, she's a great character, actually, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, a really good character and a strong character for a Bond film. Yeah, because um, she's, she's uh, as you say, she has agency, unlike most women in Bond movies, right? She goes out like a bitch. They, they kill her so quickly and so suddenly that all that effort is for nothing well they kill Paula too like women, yeah. Bond girls do not, not <laughs> have a long lifespan I'm afraid you're not going to go on to a second film usually yeah so Martina Bez is it Bezik or Beswick do we Bezik. know Bezik uh, then she was the exception that tests the rule absolutely mm. and of course she's coupled with Earl Cameron who died I think this year aged when, over 100 when you say coupled what do you mean uh, she's the guy He, she. Uh, they're working together so he's the guy the black guy that's working with her oh yeah there, there is like yeah. the Felix they're not Felix Leiter because he's in this too but they're, they're in that sort of position <laughs> yet another Felix Leiter <laughs> yeah yeah exactly what Matt means is that this this is a standard CIA friend of Bond's who gets played by somebody different in every movie what I remember is that after Doctor No doesn't he isn't he supposed to have like a one arm and one leg missing that's after Living Daylights well oh my I God. mean in terms of no, the books no you don't mean Living yeah. Daylights do you yeah well uh, sorry Licence to Kill no uh, you mean Live and Let Die don't you no no because Licence to Kill is the in the films is the one where Felix is dropped into the shark tank and where in the books is he dropped in the shark tank it's, it's quite early on I think it's Doctor yeah. No isn't it it's very early on yeah um Anyway, he's got all his limbs here and he's been played by a different actor in every movie. I think that's what Matt was getting at. Have you it? ever heard the tedious uh, theory about Bond, James Bond, being uh, a, a job, like a job title, like a pseudonym for someone? Okay. So people just uh, adopt the mantle of James Bond when the previous one dies and that's explained the recasting. Oh, There's okay. another theory it's that goes like it's the same with Felix theory. Leiter, but that the yeah. Americans are much worse than this. Recasting? So, yeah, they get a new Felix Leiter every week. <laughs> I want to just, I've jotted down this note here that says the photography is great, luminous but moody. It's by Ted Moore. It is good. There's some really nice lighting. The lighting underwater is phenomenal. I mean, 
That would, would have been a different yeah. team, actually, wouldn't it? Well, second unit, but I think you'd have the same lighting. I don't. I think that there was a dedicated underwater team, and I suspect there. I don't know, but I would, would suspect that they'd be entirely different. But well, because there's a thing on the making of where the the crew are really worried that they're going to have to all learn to dive, which they had to do for the film. So I think they use mostly the same crew underwater as well. Okay. Well. Uh, so that it's just a stunt team that's actually working underwater. Could be. Could it indeed be? I thought that there was an entirely sort of self-contained crew. Um, Handle like eggs. No, what? Oh, is that what it says on the the? There's nukes. Is that yeah. what it says the, the, I knew that there was some fine print on the nukes, and I wanted to see what it said, but I didn't freeze frame. I was in too much of a hurry. But there's some very amusing writing on nukes and Doctor Strange, like which is even more fun. I walked past a Reliant Robin in Croydon once that had a, a sticker, the exact replica of that handle like eggs. It's on the wonderful, side of it. isn't it? Wonderful. And you knew what it was. You're yeah, probably the only I person who ever it. walked past it and knew what it was. But Bond sees at the at the um, health farm, he sees this guy's got a tattoo. And I knew what that tattoo was. It's the Red Dragon because it features in Thomas Harris's book, The Red Dragon, and the movie thereof, a Hannibal Lecter story. But I thought it just thought it was really cool, cool little touch. I thought, I know what that is, Red Dragon. The guy's not very subtle, though, is he? When that that was an easy hideable. Yeah, well, he'd just said, no, in fairness, he'd just taken his wristwatch off, the, the, taken off the wristwatch, which normally concealed it. Mm. And he does, he does try and kill Bond shortly after. <laughs> so he's doing the best he can with his tattoo maintenance. Oh, I, and I wanted to ask you about this. So they steal, they hijack a plane, and this is a fantastic sequence, which is a Vulcan jet, which has these nuclear weapons on it. The bit where it lands on the water is fantastic. That must be model work. It is. What great model work. But a really big model. Well, it has to be, because otherwise the water would look wrong, wouldn't it? Cause, yeah. Because there's something about the absolute size of, of, of waves on water which gives away models. In this case, it didn't. Again, well, that's... Derek Meddings all over. This is why I don't like Spy Who Loved Me because it's mostly model work and it's really bad model work. Was it Derek Meddings? Yeah. And so you saying think he supervised. So he he'd gone off the boil. Or, or, or well, I just think he was rushed. I mean, let's face it, they were churn, trying to churn out films. So once a year. can you give me some idea how big the model would have to be? Uh, it's on the making of. Oh wow! So have a look. Uh, all I know is they had this problem that they. I think it was Ken Adams said that if we build a replica plane and put yeah. it in the water. The displacement means that we're not going to be able to film down there for weeks because the whole surface is going to get moshed up and, oh, and you're muddy. not going to be able to see a thing. Yeah. So it's going to take loads of time for that to all settle. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a complicated business. I well, think they did it. More power to Ken Adams for thinking that through. Well, again, he says um, this was the film where he learned that if you design something, you don't worry about practicality because they can build anything. Yeah. And so all of those little aqua lungs and uh, the little vehicles underwater, I, I mean, that. all of that stuff was designed I, by I him. I want to jump to that final undersea battle where they do have colour-coded frogmen, which you couldn't watch because you were asleep. But I, I just got to say, I think it's one of the highlights of the Bond series. I did wake up shortly thereafter. I did that in a second, because I knew that it was coming, so I did it in a second sitting. I've written this is one of the truly great Bonds, which I do think. I think it's fantastic. There's another strange thing about Spectre is that they hold the world ransom, but they hold them ransom for precious stones. Well, you don't want just currency. I mean, it's an international currency, isn't it? It's, it's not very convertible. The amount they're asking for Uncut in diamonds, precious isn't stone. it? Uh, no, they, they want a whole variety of gems, not just diamonds. Okay. Uh, it strikes me that uh, they specify it's like rubies and emeralds and things. Do they? Um, it strikes I don't me that remember that bit at all. If they're stressing that, all you have to do is just pull those out of circulation and just say, okay, nobody buy any more diamonds because that's the only currency. The black market can't be I that don't, strong. I don't know what you mean by when you say that. Well, cash... You can carry on spending, even if it's marked bills. You could still well, move You're suggesting cash. that you ban all transactions involving gems in yeah, the world. Yeah, restaurants. Yeah, that would be easy. 
But then obviously they still got a missile. So what's the point in paying the ransom? These guys still have two missiles. Who's to say that when you pay the ransom, what are they going to do? Give the missile back? They're going to hang up to it, aren't they? Well, that, I mean, that's obviously always a worry when you're negotiating with people who've got a couple of nukes and want to make some gemstones. They give it an hour and they say, nah, fuck it, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll just pay. We'll pay up. Yeah. This bomb uh, guy clearly can't work this out. The, I think you're worrying about the wrong aspect of this. <laughs> what I've written is that two things that I didn't like about it. There's a lot of killing of sharks or... They, they, they look like they've been badly treated. I didn't like that at all. There's definitely a shark in there that seems to have been hit with something. Yeah, I, I really didn't like that. I yeah. thought that was quite horrible. And also, there's some really... This shows my priorities. Animal welfare and good back projection. There's some really shitty back projection. and Incredibly shitty. It's when he's on the beach with Domino. Uh, it's just before one of the bad guys tries to, to attack him and he shoots him with a blow, blow well, gun. That's something I forgot. A Philip Locke is the bad guy. And okay. I really like Philip Locke. Yeah. I have no recollection of him being a bad guy in a Bond film. I can't remember the name of the character. Yeah, it's a good name. It's something like Vargas, isn't it? It is it. Vargas. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, um, but in that sequence, they're on the beach, and it's the like it's dreadful back projection, and like with the the resources of a Bond movie, why did it have to be such a shitty? Maybe let's should we blame Terence Young again? Let's well, blame I think him. we do because the whole point of that sequence, as far as I can tell, is meant to be a spoof of Doctor No where Ursula Andress comes up ashore because Bond does the same action she does when he comes out the water and oh. he's carrying the same spear gun. So I think it's just meant to be a massive in-joke that got out of hand. Okay. So rather than film on the beach, they decided it'd be a lot better just to use the plates from the previous film. That's what it looks like to me. It's wretchedly bad, though. It is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, not least because you can actually see a little car park just behind where Vargas is. So it's oh. clearly like a little tourist spot that they filmed that bit in. It, but these are that and the... the cruelty to the sharks are for me the only deficits in what what is a great classic bond movie i don't know those underwater sequences are tough going yeah but you see that's that is a universal problem for you with underwater sequences well <laughs> look yeah. you can't make it an argument that you're the guy who falls asleep with underwater sequences and then offer a meaningful critique of the it's ones in this it's difficult to end a Bond film, just like it's difficult to end a carry-on film, when you're basically dealing with lots of action sequences on top of each other, you have you feel the need that the last action sequence has to top all the others. And for me, it does. For the guy who doesn't fall asleep when he sees underwater sequences, it worked really well. But it's still guys punching each other and firing at each other. It's cowboys and Indians. And it's was, there's only going to be one outcome. It's not well, like it's, they're not going to win. It's thrilling, and Barry's music really sells it John what did you once he brings up the 007 theme it is yeah. prior to that his music underwater is tedious is it really bad it's but once that 007 theme kicks in I his think, his 007 theme not yeah. like the Monty Normal one yeah. um, it's I, absolutely cracking that piece I think Ravel might be to blame for some of the, his, the influence on the underwater music hmm. do, you, do you think his music generally in this is good because we're talking about how unexpectedly great his John Barry's score was for A View to a Kill. Yeah, no, I, this one was hard going. I, I, there wasn't much in there. It relies heavily on the Thunderball, uh, the, the, the song, song yeah. uh, melody, uh, which isn't the best melody in the world. Yeah. Uh, but his 007 theme saves everything. When I, he brings that one in, it, it... I'd have to listen to all of them to, to give a comparison, but I'm probably prejudiced because one of the first records I ever owned as a kid was the soundtrack. To, to Thunderball because it's got that great Frogman battle on the cover if nothing else well the Love weird it. thing is the first Bond soundtrack I owned was View to a Kill so <laughs> isn't oh, that weird yeah <laughs> so yeah it's all coming together you uh, probably had it on one of those nasty nasty compact discs then. it was a cassette 
<laughs> Full marks. I had for, it on cassette. For being analog. No, better than a CD in many ways, yeah. Yeah. It was quite annoying. You had to wind forward to try and find the one bit of music you wanted. That's the only so where, uh, where do you think this stands in the pantheon of James Bond movies? I think it's perfectly serviceable, but it is, it's the fourth in a franchise, which is never a good thing. And as such, to I me, think Connery looked bored, and I think the films are looking a bit I, I think the I think Goldfinger might be better, but I think otherwise this is the best one so far. It feels like they rushed it. I think You Only Live Twice is a, a much better film. Well, maybe that should be the next one. Well, we shouldn't do them in order. We should do a Bond at a time, really. Yeah, we've yeah. done okay. Roger Moore, we've done Connery. Lazenby's easy, because we're both going to like that. I yeah, think. yeah, that's a high point in the series. Isn't Unfortunately, it? this leads us is a terrible <laughs> decision well, to make. No, no, I well, um, I think that, and I, you've got to have an open mind. I think we should do a Daniel Craig. Okay. Um, <laughs> the hesitation speaks you know volumes. What? I was thinking about this the other day, and got to be done at some the point. The one I haven't watched because I turn yeah. it off every time I try. Yeah. I've realised starts underwater. And which one is that? I don't know. Um, it it's Skyfall? the one after the first one. That Could he did. It, uh, Skyfall or Spectre. Uh, what was the second? Of those. It's got a oh, it's the one Quantum of Solace, is that it? Yes, it is Quantum yeah, of Solace. And it starts underwater for some Rumble reason. Romola Gary gets covered in oil in it, possibly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, mm -hmm. so, okay, maybe maybe Daniel Craig, but anyway, folks, there's more bonds to come. We will do another bond. This, this is James, James Bond, bond will return. return. <laughs> this has been a podcast by my friend Matt West and myself, Andrew Cartmel, but very importantly, the music, the fabulous music you heard at the beginning and that you're listening to now is by Joe Kramer. Thank you very much, Joe. It's the first time I've tasted women. They're rather good. <laughs> <laughs>